We now come to our third letter of the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the churches. And he wrote them to literal churches. So far, we've covered the letter to the church of Ephesus and the letter to the church of Smyrna, the loveless church and the suffering church. But now we're going to turn to the letter to the church of Pergamum or Pergamus. And this is to the compromising church. It's important to understand that not everybody in Pergamum were, was, was in compromise. It was those teachers that they might have had a tendency to allow to be there, that they might have had a tendency to put themselves under, but there were teachers that were teaching compromise. And the warning is really against them and against those who would put up with false teaching. The Bible says that in the last days, men are going to heap up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears. They'll tell them what they want to hear. You want to make sure that's not you, that you put yourself under good, solid, biblical teaching that will tell you the truth, even if the truth is hard to hear and will not just tickle ears. Because there's plenty of people out there that what they want to do is tickle ears. There were compromisers in the church of Pergamos, and we're going to see how they were connected to these false teachers. Now, for the sake of clarity, I want to give you the dictionary definition of compromise. And there's three definitions here. The first two are positive, like a husband and a wife who are fighting over whether or not to buy a boat. And so they compromise and buy a sea -Doo. OK, that's good compromise. All right. So let me give them to you. First of all, compromise is an agreement or a settlement of a dispute that is reached by each side making concessions. An example, an ability to listen to another side of the dispute um, a device of compromise accepted, acceptable to both. Then there's another that is a middle stance between conflicting opinions and actions reached to a, by a mutual concession or modification, a compromise between commercial appeal and historical interest. So you may have certain philosophies within business and one's driven by one, one's driven by the other, and they come to a compromise uh, somewhere in between. And then there's this one, the acceptance of standards that are lower than desirable. Sexism should be tackled without compromise is the example that they gave. So it's an accepting of standards that are lower than are acceptable. And that was happening in the church at Pergamum. Pergamum was an amazing city. It was a grand city. It was a destination city. I think of destination cities today. New York is definitely a destination city. Cal uh, L.A. is a destination city. Uh, Newport uh, is a destination city. Uh, Huntington Beach for us is a destination city. Uh, places in Hawaii are destination cities. But the most like uh, Pergamos were destination cities like Las Vegas or New Orleans. It was a destination city, first of all, because it was beautiful. It was built up on a hill and the city kind of flowed down below it and there was a sharp drop off. And by that sharp drop off on the top of that was what was in its day called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. In their day, they called it one of the seven wonders of the world. Now, you remember that the temple of Diana in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders as well. We talked about that when we looked at the letter to the church of Ephesus. Well, here you have the seat or the throne of Zeus. Zeus is the, the, the most powerful of the Greek gods. And he had a throne that was up on this, uh, this outcropping, the Acropolis 
of the city of Pergamum, as well as all kinds of other uh, false, uh, all kinds of other Greek mythological gods. They had a temple to Dionysus, which is the god of wine or pleasure. Uh, they had a temple to Athena. They had, I mean, you just name it. And these were not just like, these were not just like small temples like you might find in other cities where people of that city who had that God that they worshiped, these were all destination city kind of temples. They are talked about with great grandeur. The throne of Zeus was clad in gold. They have it rebuilt, reconstructed and rebuilt in uh, Berlin. If you go to, I forget which museum it's in, but you go to the Museum of Pergamum inside of that museum and they have it rebuilt to scale inside of Berlin. It was so absolutely amazing. They also have the, the steepest of all of the theaters that they have ever found. It sat 10,000 people. It was built right under the Acropolis. And if you want to do this right now, then on your phone, look up Pergamus or Pergamum, uh, look it up and then look up images and take a look at the images from a distance. So you're going to see the the, the ruins, but when you look at it from a distance, you're going to see that theater which stands out and it makes these ruins distinct among other ruins. You always know Pergamum when you see it because it's got this steep theater. And I wonder how many people fell on down that theater? How many people really got hurt? Because when you look at it, it is steep and it sat 10,000 people. Well, here in this city, there was some compromise, but there was also a church. A church had been established in, in this destination city. There, there's a Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas. There's a Calvary Chapel in New Orleans. God's people will break through even when what's going on around is not necessarily godly. And it's interesting that Pergamus was the seat of the proconsul for the region. The proconsul, the Roman proconsul, it's kind of like the prefect, kind of like Judas was for, excuse me, kind of like uh, Pilate was for the region of the Galilee. Did you know that um, Judas was a prefect? Uh, no, um, just a mistake. It just, uh, so the proconsul was at Pergamum. He had the seat of authority so you could be drawn before the proconsul and he could put you to death or he could spare your life depending on what he wanted to do, the authority that he had there. And the reason Pergamon was chosen for this is because it had been the capital of the region for a long time. Before Ephesus ever became a capital, Pergamon had been the capital and one of the kings, Attalus III, I think, made a, um, made a concession with the Romans that he would fight on their side and after there was victory, gave them over the whole region, gave it to the Romans. The Romans already controlled the entire world. It was probably a smart move on his part that he might be able to keep some of his power while he was alive, because sooner or later, the Romans, Romans had taken everything else in the known world. If you were to look at a map, they'd taken everything from down in Africa, everything that goes up around where Israel and Iraq is, uh, all the way up into Asia Minor, even over into parts of, of Asia, back over into Europe, all the way back over to Rome and on the other side of Rome as well. And so they had that entire region. Well, when Attalus gave them the region of what was then called the region of Pergamum, and the city of Pergamum was the, the capital of it, uh, it was a good day for Rome because now they controlled everything, especially the trade routes. 
And the trade routes through Asia Minor or modern day Turkey were very important in their day. If you were going to go from Africa, you either took a ship across to Europe or you went around through Israel, up through Tyre and Sidon, up around through Turkey, and eventually, and, and Pergamum is only 95 miles away from over the Aegean Sea from Athens. And then you could take a ship on a short route, or you could take a land route that would go up and around over into Europe from modern day Turkey. So it was an extremely important piece of the Roman Empire. But it was also a really good day for, for, for Christianity. Because now there was a Greek language that was all around the world. There were Roman roads that were all around the known world. And now there was a trade route that was secure for the gospel to make it all the way from Israel down into Alexandria, Egypt, which it did. At the same time, it was making its way up into India, into Asia Minor, Turkey, these seven churches we're talking about today, over into Europe to the cities of Philippi, uh, uh, Berea, Thessalonica, Corinth, Athens, uh, which Paul preached at, then Corinth, and then back over to Ephesus, which is very close to where Corinth are, although the Aegean Sea is in between them. And so now you have one place where the gospel went. And when you think about all of these churches that these letters are written to were established within two decades of the resurrection of Jesus. And the churches in Alexandria, Egypt, the churches all the way over into Rome. Within two decades, the church in Rome had been established. The gospel had gone out and, and had changed lives. And the Bible says the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Within the gospel is the grace for someone to be able to hear it and believe and become a Christian. That's what you need, is hearing what is in the gospel. Jesus died for your sins according to the scriptures, for your sins, personally. He loves you. He died for your sins according to the scripture. He was buried and rose from the dead according to the scriptures. And if you can believe it, if you can receive it, and if you can stand on it, then you will be saved. And the gospel went throughout the world, and people got saved everywhere, even in a place like Pergamos, where there would be struggles and difficulties. Now, let's pick it up. We want to start in verse 12. It says, to the angel of the church in Pergamos, right? The angel would either be an angel over the city in the spiritual realm or the pastor that was leading the church, the overseer of the church, who were representatives of the church. So the, the messenger, if he's a pastor, he's not necessarily doing the things that the church is doing but he's a messenger and he's responsible for it. So he's, got a, he's, he's a representative. An angel would be a representative as well. The word church there is ekklesia. Ekklesia was a Greek word that was co-opted by Jesus to speak about bringing his church. It's a group of people in a city that have authority to be able to make decisions in that city. Every Greek city had an ekklesia that met. If you go to Athens, you can see the ancient place where the ecclesia in Athens met. Now, that's not the church. That's the city ecclesia. So the church is not just a gathering of people. I heard somebody say at one time, well, the church is kind of the New Testament version of the Old Testament synagogue. In a way, I wouldn't argue with you completely, but the church has more authority than the Old Testament synagogue ever had. We have authority in Jesus Christ to confront the evil that is around us, 
to confront the darkness and the spiritual forces and they will not be able to stand against us and we can make decisions. And so Jesus said things like whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That we have authority as we are doing the work that Christ has called us to do. I admit there's some mystery in that authority, but that's not a bad thing. That there is some mystery in what the church is doing and what we're doing is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for there to be some mystery. We aren't supposed to understand everything clearly and dogmatically. It's one of my pet peeves. If I could put together a sermon, 10 things pastors need to stop doing, this would be number two. Number two would be stop being dogmatic about everything, would be number two. I won't tell you number one until later, when it's more appropriate. Uh, So to the church of Pergamos, which is amazing that in this city there was even a church because it was a place where you would go and bring your sacrifices to your particular God. But it wasn't just like, I'm going to go to, to uh, Athens and I'm going to sacrifice to Zeus for his favor. It was like, we're going to Pergamum and we're going to sacrifice to the gods and we're going to party and we're gonna, that's what it was about. That's what Pergamum was all about. And so it's amazing that there was a church in there in the first place that God came in and the power of the gospel was able to cut through all of that stuff and people were able to be saved. There's hurting people everywhere, right? And so then it says, these things says, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now we know the Bible says in Ephesians 4 that the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword. We know that we're told that we are to take up the word of God, which is the sword and the shield of faith to fight against the enemy in Ephesians chapter 6. But those words are the word for a Roman short sword. The word here is for a different sword. And just like everything else, when you start diving into the experts, they have different opinions about what the sword was. There are those that believe that it was a long sword, kind of like the knights used in England during the Dark Ages. They used, some of them used swords that were more than six feet long, which you can imagine trying to wield a sword like that quickly. This could have been that. Others believe that it is a sickle-type sword that was on a pole and that that's what the Greek word refers to and it was used in the midst of battle. Either way, even the short Roman dagger or, or short sword from the Romans was used in battle. And so when God says, he who has the two-edged sword, and remember the vision in chapter one of Jesus with a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, it's a sword to fight. In fact, when he returns, it says that he makes war with the sword that comes out of his mouth. So he wants them to remember in Pergamum, I have the sword to make war. And remember the description that Jesus gives is always connected to something in the letter. There's always a connection. Every every book has a description. The description here is, these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. It always has some connection. He says, I know your works. He says this in every letter. He's among us. He knows us. He knows our works personally, both good and bad. He knows if we need today to be corrected, if our hearts are right to be corrected. He knows if we do good works and he knows the reasons why we do them. Because you can do good works for the wrong reason or you can do them for the right reason. He knows our works and he says, I know your works. And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, let's read a little bit more. It's going to bring up Satan's throne again. We'll talk about that. Then we'll talk about what's in between. So I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name 
and do not deny my faith even in the days which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, first of all, let's just take that as, as Jesus means it. Satan is among them in Pergamum. Everybody wants to fight about exactly what the, the throne or the seat of Satan was. The, the, um, Satan dwells here, it says. The word for throne is not the word for a royal throne, but it's the word for a seat in their day. It's like the head of the table that's reserved for the patriarch of the family. Here, you take the head of the table. So it was the seat of authority within a home that's spoken of here. So it's a place where Satan dwelled. We think about it, Satan has to have a headquarters. I don't know that he has to have one, but it certainly seems like this is saying that this was his headquarters, or maybe still is. But Satan had to have a place that he was kind of ruling from, and it seems that Pergamum was that place. And maybe it's why there was so much wickedness and darkness in the city of Pergamum, because it was where Satan dwelled. Now, some say you had the throne of Zeus, which doesn't have Zeus sitting on it. It's just a building that's shaped like a throne. And so some say, obviously, and I think this is probably going to be what most scholars say Jesus was talking about. It's on the Acropolis. You can't miss it. It was clad in gold. So it shone with, you know, when the sun hit it and it looked like a throne. So he could have been talking about Zeus and maybe Satan being the power behind the most powerful of the gods. Remember, the Bible talks about demonic spirits being behind the gods in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Maybe there was also a temple to Augustus in Pergamum. Now, we know it was there, but they haven't been able to identify it. Here's the reason. There were so many temples in Pergamum to all these different gods, even the emperor cult, that they were not able to, to discover which one was Augustus. They've got many of them they haven't identified, but they know from history that Augustus had a temple there. Augustus is the first Roman emperor, the very first one. Coming out of the Roman Republic into the Roman emperor, Empire was Augustus Caesar. And he was part of the, cult, the, the emperor cult worship. And so some say that because of that, that that is the, him being there. There was also the temple to, or the, um, I don't know if hospital's the right word. Um, all of these are in the temple of Pergamos. All of them together made up the temple of Pergamos. Um, but there was also a temple to the God of healing, and I always pronounce it wrong, so I'm going to try to pronounce it right today. It's Asclepius, 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 Asclepius. I worked through it. Will I say it right again? Probably not. Asclepius, Asclepius. I'm getting there. Asclepius. So there was the, the, the temple to Asclepius, which was the healing God. And it was a couple of miles away from Pergamum. And you traveled there from around the world if you were sick. And there were all kinds of treatments from the legitimate to the superstitious. And there you would go to stay the night in that building. And when you stayed the night there, they would release tame snakes that would crawl around you at night. You may have taken some medicine. You may have been sleepy. You may have, you may have been in some kind of a trance. You may have just decided to spend the night there because if you were touched by one of the snakes in the middle of the night, it meant that that Asclepius was touching you. 
And so you may be healed by him. So that was superstitious. And still the, the symbol of the serpents around the pole is from a scapulus. Some believe it's from the serpent being lifted in the wilderness, but it's not. You can actually go and look at pictures of the, the healing house of Asclepius, and you can see that they've got a rod with serpents around it. That's exactly, um, they believed that you could be healed by them. There was a temple to Dionysus, to Athena, to De De uh, Dem Demeter, um, all kinds of other temples to all of these guys. Uh, which one did Jesus really even mean that he had a literal seat there? Or did he just mean that Satan was there? And if Satan is there, then the fact that a church is there is even more powerful. Because we could probably say that we've never actually faced Satan himself. Remember, Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is not the opposite of God. He's more the opposite of like Michael the archangel. God is way above him. So he can only be at one place at one time. So that the power of the gospel could break through that darkness is absolutely amazing. Now, he also says here a couple things. He says, I know your works. He's got a couple good things to say to them. And where you dwell where Satan's throne is and you hold fast to my name. The very fact that he said you hold fast to my name means that the name of God was trying to be shaken from them. They had out of necessity to hang on to it. And perhaps there's a way that out of necessity, we ourselves as believers have to hang on to his name, to hold fast to his name, that we don't allow ourselves to be shaken away because the enemy is going to do his best to try to shake you so that you let go of him and begin living apart from him. And he says, you didn't do that. You held fast to my name. And I love that in what is called the compromising church, he's encouraging them because they hold fast to his name. And he says, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful martyr. Now, some believe that this is a, that Ant we don't know who Antipas is. We have no histor history of Antipas at all. Uh, most, uh, most likely a real person because his name means um, one who opposes or who stands against. Some believe that he's using this as, as an example of all of the martyrs in Pergamum. Because the proconsul was there, if you went and stood before the proconsul, no matter what you were charged with, he could decide your death. It was said that he held a sword, and if he dropped it, it meant that you were going to be killed. If he held on to it the whole time, then you would not be killed. So if you were there and you were brought before the proconsul, you could be pronounced for death if you were not a Roman citizen. If you were a Roman citizen, then you had a right to appeal to Caesar. But if you were not a Roman citizen, and remember, Christianity was not a protected religion. Now, Paul was a Christian who appealed to Caesar. But if you weren't a Roman citizen, you could have your life taken for anything that the proconsul felt like he thought that your life should be taken from you. Probably a real person, I would think. Um, you know, but again, there's mystery. That this name means someone who stands against, so he stood against the things of this city. And that those who stood against the things of the city became a martyr. I can see why some scholars believe that this is a representation of all the martyrs in Pergamum instead of a, a real person. But we don't know. And then he goes on to say, who was my faithful martyr, which makes us think that he's talking about an individual, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now let's think about this battle that takes place spiritually because it takes place spiritually with us. 
We know Ephesians 6, 11 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or schemes of the enemy. And I won't go every, over every piece of armor, but I'll encourage you to make sure each of those represents something in your life. You're not supposed to get up and go, I'm putting on my helmet. I'm putting on my breastplate. I'm putting on my belt of truth. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to walk in truth, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness. You're supposed to live those things. James 4, 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That is the equation for the devil fleeing from you. A submitting to God. God, I'll do whatever you want. I am yours. My life is yours. Tell me and I'll do it. I'm submitting to God and I'm going to resist the devil and he is going to flee from me. These are the guaranteed successes that we have. First John says, if anyone is in Christ, he does not sin. That's better thought of as does not practice sin because the same book says that if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. So that if, you, if you're in Christ, you don't sin and the evil one cannot touch you. He is, there's a protection on you over the satanic world. I like to tell people that Satan is more afraid of you getting serious about your faith and living for God then you need to be of him because we have protection in Christ. James 2.19 says, yes, that there is one God, you do well. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. The demons believe in Jesus and tremble. And if you think you're under some kind of spiritual attack, then say the name of Jesus because they tremble. And he is the strong man who can protect you from anything Satan can do. And if he's got you scared and you think you hear him walking down your hallway or you see carpet making footprints or whatever's happening that you would know, it's all smoke and mirrors. You are Christ's. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And so they had this church in the midst of this city, which was an amazing place to have a church because it was the place where Satan dwelt. And there's no reason for us to think that that isn't literal. And then in verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against you because you have those there who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. So a doctrine is a teaching. The doctrine of Balaam is a false teaching. So you've got a group of people there that are holding to a false teaching. And this is one of the reasons that we want to be open if somebody says what you're believing is a false teaching because we don't want to be of the people that are together in a place believing a false teaching. Now, just because somebody says that you believe a false teaching doesn't mean it is. There, there is today what are called discernment movements. And sometimes they're good, but sometimes they can paint with a broad brush and they end up getting everybody. Nobody, everybody's a false teacher, according to them. So you want to be, you want to be discerning and maybe have the gift of discernment working among us so that we can go, yeah, that's false and that's not. The doctrine of Balaam was definitely false. It was Balaam who was hired by Balak, the king of the Moabites, to come and curse the Israelites. And he went to Balaam because Balaam was known as a prophet in his day. And at first he said, he, God asked, he asked God, can I go? And God said, no. So it seems like Balaam had a relationship with God. At times it seems like he's right with God. At times we know he's not. And Balaam isn't. In fact, we read about him being killed in a certain battle known for what he did against Israel. And he had, he had, Balaam, Balak had sent him a lot of money, come and curse the Israelites. God told him no. So the next day they came back and they said, he came downstairs said, or, or across the house and said, I can't go. God told me no. 
They said, too bad, because we have a lot of money to give you, a lot of money. So he went back and he asked God if he could go. And God said, go ahead and go. Only speak the things that I said. Now, if God ever tells you no, and you ask him a second time and he tells you yes, don't go. Stick with the no, don't go to the yes. Because the angel of the Lord stood in the way to kill Balaam. And his donkey saved his life, remember? And, and God said, go ahead and go, but speak only what I say. And he goes ahead and goes. I think at that point I'd be like, okay, no, I'm good. I'm good not going. And so he stands up on a hill and he sees the camp of Israel down below and he, he goes to curse them. He's going to curse them now. But the Spirit of God comes upon him and he blesses them instead. And when he's done, Balak is like, that's not why I hired you. You blessed them. I wanted you to curse them. So he took him to another mountain, like the mountain was the problem. And they took him to another mountain and he couldn't curse them, but he blessed them and he did it four times. And at the end of four times, it says that Balaam left. But we learn from here what Balaam did. It says, and, and, and the next thing we read is that the Israel men slept with the Moabite women and committed idolatry. So it's this double sin. First of all, there is the, the adultery, the fornication, which was, which was spoken against in the law. And then there was idolatry, which was spoken against in the law. So these women were, you can sleep with us, but you have to serve our God. And the men are like, okay. And they do it. And 24,000 of them die. And now we learn that Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now we know the doctrine of Balaam was tell them it's okay to do it. So there were those in the city of Pergamon who were believing the doctrine of Balaam was it's okay to sleep with these people. In most of the, the temples in Rome, there was prostitution. We won't even talk about the details because it's not worthy of a pulpit to talk about the details. But it went on. And so people in the church were going, it's okay for us to do this. We can go to the temple. We can sacrifice meat. We can sleep with people there. That's okay for us. We can do that. And it's the doctrine of Balaam. Now, not only did they have the doctrine of Balaam, but it goes on to say, and thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The word for hate there that God says is a very strong word for hate. And you remember that God had encouraged the Ephesians by saying, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So the Ephesians hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. These guys had the, they, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans being taught. So not only were those the people that were believing the doctrine of Balaam, but they were also believing the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, there are those who teach that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was the priesthood over the laity. That literally Nicholas means the victory over the people. But Nicholas doesn't mean that. Nicholas means victory of the people. And so it's a stretch to say that this is the, the seat of the victor, that it's the pope, and that it's a hierarchy in the church that was established. I just see no evidence for it. It may, it may be the case, but I don't see any evidence for it. I don't see any evidence in, in history. The Bible doesn't tell us one way or another what it's about. But early church fathers tell us that these guys were the followers of Nicholas. Nicholas was one of the deacons in the book of Acts that was chosen. 
and that he began to teach a false doctrine that in order to, to, that you could go along to get along. That if you were in a Roman city and they made you give tribute to Caesar, then just give tribute to Caesar. It's just an act. It's nothing. You just do it. And if you're there and you go to a temple or you're part of the trade union and they have you go to a party and you're involved there sexually, well, then it's okay. You're going along to get along. You've you're, you got to do what you've got to do to be able that you can, can, can see, the, you know, be okay in the world that you're living in. So in a, in a world that brought persecution because they weren't part of the emperor cult, because they wouldn't be part of the trade unions, there was this teaching of Nicholas that you could go ahead and get along. Now, this was taught really early in church history. That we're told about this very early in church history. So even though it's not biblical, we don't have the same authority that that's what it was, we have some strong evidence that that's what was happening. There are modern-day Nicolaitans who want to live in the church and live in the world, who want to have that doctrine, who, who want to say, well, you know what? You, you're being involved in the world. You, know, you can't go out and not party with people. You can't, whatever. You, can't, you got to go along to get along. That still have, there are modern-day Nicolaitans. And God says, I hate this. They were eating things sacrificed to idols, like the doctrine of Balaam. They were involved in sexual immorality. And then they were Christians who were in church. Now, we don't have any letters from Paul to the church of Pergamum. I wish we did, but we do have one to the church of Ephesus, excuse me, to Corinth. And Paul had to say to the Corinthians, you can't sleep with a prostitute. Paul had to say that to them. Your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and you can't sleep with a prostitute because you're, you're one with Christ then you're making Christ one with a prostitute. You can't do that. That's how fluent sexual morality was, or flagrant it was, in their day. And so he's writing them to tell them that. Let me give you just a couple of passages. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap for themselves teachers who will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. You couldn't get any more fables than the mythological gods. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5 says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, revilings, evil suspicions, useless, useless wranglings of men, of corrupt mind, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, from such withdraw yourself. Get away from these people that have these kinds of doctrine. We also know that there were spirits behind these false gods. And so 1 John 4, 1 says, Behold, excuse me, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test them, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now in verse 16, he says to them of these two doctrines that are being taught there, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and the doctrine of, of Balaam, repent. And five times he says to the churches, repent. We generally think of repentance as something you do when you come to Christ. You change your mind, you decide to live for Jesus, and now you invite Christ into your life, and when he comes in, he changes you. And now suddenly you're doing good works, not because you are supposed to do good works in order to be saved, but because once you've given to your, your life to Christ, there's a transformation in your heart and you suddenly want to do good things. But the, even as a Christian, 
There are times when we have let compromise come in and we need to repent. And if five times it's said to repent to the church, then there are times when we need to repent. When we've allowed something in our lives that is a compromise that needs to get out. He says, or else. Now here's this, you repent, or else I will come to you and fight against you with the sword of my mouth. Now since this is the sword, the same word, and the same Jesus that has the sword of his mouth in Revelation 1 and comes back with the sword in his mouth and fights against the, the, the wicked world with the sword, he says he's going to fight against you. Now, I don't think that necessarily means that this is the sword of an, un, he's going to fight against you like an unbeliever. But we know that whom God loves, he disciplines. And God loves you and will discipline you because of your compromise. For whatever reason, you've justified it. Whatever doctrine you've, you've created in your own mind that has allowed you to justify your compromise against Christ. And he says, repent or else I will fight against you with the sword that comes out of my mouth. And the Bible says the discipline of God is grievous, but it brings forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness in the book of Hebrews. In verse 17, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Don't let this one go by. All right. Evaluate your life. Ask him, am I compromising in any way? Is there anything that you want to speak to me about compromise? Don't just think it's for somebody else and don't nudge your husband right now. Look at yourself, examine where you are. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, I will give of the hidden manna to eat. This is, this is Jesus. When Jesus was having a conversation with the scribes and Pharisees, they said, Moses gave us manna to eat. And Jesus said in John 6, 35, in that context, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. In that context of them talking, bragging about God giving Moses man in the wilderness, Jesus gives that statement to them. So he says, I'm going to give you some of the hidden manna. We have Christ. And then he says, I will give him a white stone. And on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Again, there's some mystery in these things, and that's okay. A white stone on the, on the breastplate of the high priest, there was a black and a white stone that was used for the Urim and the Thummim. The white stone was a yes, the black stone was a no. Uh, when you were acquitted in a Roman trial, they would give you a white stone. There was a black stone and a white stone. If you were given the white stone, you were acquitted. If you were given the black stone, you were condemned. And so he could just be talking about innocence. He's given us a white stone. Acceptance. Um, God's grace, his forgiveness. We, we make it into heaven despite ourselves, right? And we're given a white stone. It's like, yes. And on it is a name that no one knows but me. And, and I think that the name's got something to do with reality. And, and you might go, boy, I hope it's this name or that name. But I think it's going to be a reality of who we are in Christ in a positive way. I've always said of this name that God gives us that we don't know. That, that mine's probably going to be annoying. God's going to say, here, here, annoying. Here's your white stone. I look at it, annoying. Just because sometimes I like to annoy people just for the purpose of annoying them. But in reality, I think it's something positive about me. It's something positive that God's going to give me a name. I got, I got Robert Leroy Furrow from my, my mom and dad, my two grandpas, Robert Golden and Leroy Furrow. So I'm Robert Leroy Furrow. 
but I have a name given to be my, by God, which will be much more appropriate than Leroy. <laughs> now, three things in closing. Even if we are where Satan's throne is or where he dwells, there is no need to worry. We have our victory in Christ. He has made an open spectacle of the devil, the Bible says. And you stand fast in Christ. Submit to God and resist the devil. You have nothing to worry about. Now, the Bible says don't give place to the devil. So it's possible that you could give place to the devil. So don't do that. But to submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Number two, solid teaching is extremely important in our relationship with Christ. Therefore, make sure that you receive solid teaching. Like the Bereans, receive the word of God with all joy, but search the scriptures to see whether or not these things are true. And God will judge false teachers. And for that reason, people that hold the position of a teacher like me ought to be very, very careful with things that we say. Sometimes I'm asked, what do you think God would say to you today if he could see you? Or what would you say to the church that you pastor if Jesus were here? And I can't answer those questions because I, I can't put words in the mouth of Jesus. I could tell you what I think he would say, but I would just be telling you what Robert Fro thinks God would say. And it's better for me to go, I don't want to put my, word, my words into God's mouth at all. And when you're teaching God's word, if you're a teacher, God's calling you to be a teacher at whatever level, then you give the word of God and you rightly divide it. A worker who needs not be ashamed, it says, rightly dividing the word of God. And let there, you know, I, I use the word mystery several times today. Let there be mystery in the Bible. It, life is, it has mystery. This is God's word. It's so rich. God meant there to be some mystery. You, you don't know everything, pastor. You just think you do. And I think more so, you just think you're supposed to have the answers. So when someone asks you, you're like, well, I'll tell you exactly what that is. Let there be some mystery. God will judge false teachers. And finally, in Christ, we are accepted, innocent. And he calls you by name, but by a very appropriate name. He, he rena God renamed Jacob to Israel. God's going to rename us to a very appropriate name. What a day when we are given that white stone, whatever it represents, and that new name that's written on it. Because to some degree, we live in Pergamum. The world's out of control. There's a lot of compromise in the church today. A lot of people wanting to follow their own desires and their own heart instead of the word of God. So may we stand fast among the modern day doctrine of Balaam and the neo Nicolaitan doctrine. That's my own little term, Neo-Nicolaitan. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these letters that are written to these churches and how they speak to us so clearly and so powerfully and how we can relate to the Christian living in Pergamum because we are living in a world that glorifies all kinds of, of things that would be compromised for us Christians to be involved in. And so we pray that you would help to keep us pure and we pray that we would not be begin to believe a false doctrine and start compromising in our lives. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus, we pray.
Amen.